So I love Vacation Bible School. I mean, what's not to love? It's fun, there's a catchy soundtrack, we get t-shirts, t-shirts. And you know, I think I I love every theme. I mean, it might be hard-pressed if you showed me a theme for Vacation Bible School to say, like, ooh, I don't like that one. I mean, who doesn't want to be a castaway on an island with a fun-talking parrot or sent on a spaceship to Mars or do something underwater? But man, when I learned this year that the theme was food truck party, I was like, this is it. It's happening, everyone, food trucks. (laughs) Because I like food. Do you like food? I mean, food, right? And here's the thing I love about food. Food in and of itself is fun, and food trucks are great fun. But as people of faith, food has a special place for us. Food equals love. As we shared with the kids this week, and as I hope you've experienced in reading Scripture, throughout Scripture, when God wants to show up and say, I gotcha, I'm here for you, I'm going to take care of you, God shows up with food. This week we talked to the kids about Exodus 16, where Moses and the Israelites are in the wilderness, and you remember they've been wandering for a while, and their bellies are hungry, and they start saying, I think God brought us out here to kill us. We're starving. What are we going to do? And God rains down manna. God provides food for them, and the people understand that God wants them to have what they need and to have a relationship with them. There are so many other examples of food in the Bible, and we'll read another story from the gospel here in a second. But you know, when I was pondering Exodus 16 a few years ago and thinking about all the ways God shows up and feeds people in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, something occurred to me. As someone born and raised in the South, I realized for the first time that God is a Southern grandmother. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I have a grandmother like this. This is, might be why it came to mind. When I see my grandmother, I never have enough meat on my bones, and I always must be hungry. <laughs> and what you should know about my grandmother is she's not much of a cook, but she will stock the best snacks. There's no generic snacks at grandma's house. It is those Dove chocolate ice cream bars, as many as you want. And it's been this way since I was a child. I don't know why. Toast at my grandmother's house tastes better than any other toast. Sandwiches, better than any other sandwich. And I've noticed with my own children, as my mother has become a grandmother, she has the same thing. My kids go to her house and it's just like, here is all the food. Eat as many cookies as you want. It's just this buffet of love and food. Now, if I'm being honest, and because it's Father's Day, it's not just women or mothers who do this. If you ask my children how they know their father loves them, the first thing they will say is he cooks for us because he does. If you ask them if their mother cooks, they will say no. And in fact, when Dalton travels occasionally, my kids' first thing question to me is, what are we going to eat? How are we going to eat? Because they know that the food and the love in our house is specifically related to their father who makes some great barbecue because he's a Memphis boy. But this is true for all of us, right? We can think of someone in our lives where you could just conjure up the vision of the food they made. Maybe it was a, a grandparent's butter beans or, or a favorite pound cake. And it, it, it's not just that it tasted delicious, but something about when you ate it. You knew the hours it took to prepare it. And you knew that they made it just for you. We know about love and food in the church too, don't we? I know there are people in here who make delicious food 
who make food when someone is recovering from a surgery or has experienced a loss or welcomed a new baby, and you show up with this banquet for a person in need. Maybe you've been a recipient of that. I have. I have never felt more loved than when people bring me food. It's just like this humbling experience of, wow, you thought about me. Like, you cared enough about me to think that you would bring me food so that I didn't have to worry about this. And I know that it's just food and we eat it three times a day and it shouldn't be a big deal, but somehow in that moment, in the giving and the sharing of food, it becomes something more. And I think that's what happens in Scripture. Food becomes something more than what it is. It becomes a sign of who God is and who God calls us to be. And so this morning, we are going to hear a story out of Scripture that was shared with our kids this week at Vacation Bible School. It's probably going to sound very familiar to you, but I want you to listen to this specific version out of John. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It comes from John 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. So hear now God's word for us today. After this, Jesus went across the sea, the Galilee Sea, that is the Tiberias Sea. A large crowd followed him because they had seen the miraculous signs he had done among the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat there with his disciples. It was nearly time for Passover, the Jewish festival. Jesus looked up and saw the large crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, Where will we buy food for these people? Jesus said this to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, More than half a year's salary worth of food wouldn't be enough for each person to even have a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, A youth here has five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is it for a crowd like this? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass there. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were sitting there. He did the same with the fish, each getting as much as they wanted. When they had plenty to eat, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that had been left over by those who had eaten. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's something interesting about this particular miracle. It's not often that all four gospel writers record the same story. More often in the Bible, we might see a parable or a healing story in two or maybe three of the Gospels. But I believe, with the exception of the resurrection, which of course appears in all four Gospels, this is the only miracle that all four Gospel writers recorded. Now when something like that happens, a light bulb goes off for me, maybe it goes off for you that says, man, we should pay attention. (laughs) Because when these four different writers were thinking about how they wanted to make sure that everyone knew the story of who God was and Jesus Christ his son and the story of who we are called to be as followers of Jesus Christ, they all said we have to include this miracle. We have to tell people about the feeding of the 5,000. 
What's interesting is that every gospel adds its own little flavor to it, right? And as you might know, John is always the one who's a little bit different than the others. <laughs> Partially because his gospel was recorded a little bit later, and you know there are some other variables that scholars will talk about, but generally, John's gospel is a little bit different than the other ones, and it's no different here. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that it had come to a later part of the day. We can imagine it's getting close to supper time. And that the disciples are the ones who come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, you know, it's getting late in the day. It might be a good idea if we sent these people to find lodging and food in a nearby town because we assume there was nothing there where Jesus was. Another detail that's unique to John's gospel that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, when it comes time to find the food, those five barley loaves and two fish, to feed everyone with, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, the bread and the fish come from the disciples. In my head, I'm picturing, you know, they have some satchel, and the disciples are like, we have these, and Jesus goes, great, let's feed the crowd. But did you hear in John's Gospel, it's a little bit different. It's not the disciples who bring the food forward. And so if this is a story of a miraculous feeding that tells us something about who God is and Jesus Christ and who we're called to be as followers of Jesus, what do these different details mean? I mean, what does it mean that it has this wonderful aside where Jesus asked Philip, what are we going to do to feed all these people? And then you kind of get this Uh, note to the side. They break the fourth wall and they say, this is just a test. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Don't worry. Right? What does that mean? Why did the writer of John's gospel put it that way? Well, if we really wanted to get out to Father's Day lunch pretty quickly today, I would tell you the truth, which is I don't know for certain. Right? I don't know for certain. But that's not the whole story, is it? This week in Vacation Bible School, Pastor and Eric and I got to have the really fun job of telling the Bible stories to the kids. I have to tell you that I did not do any early childhood education. My own children could probably list a name, uh, name a whole litany of ways that I, I don't do it right. right? <laughs> but once a year, I put on my hat and I try to have fun with the kids and tell Bible stories because I have fun with it. I have fun with the kids. I am so fed by the energy and joy of the kids in engaging the Bible. And, you know, I think what it is for me is that as an adult, I I forget a lot of times how to play in the Bible. I went to school where I had to read the Bible as an assignment, which is its own peculiar thing, and all of these books about the shoulds and everyone who's looked at all the... and, And it can kind of seem very daunting. But when we're teaching our kids about the Bibles and Bible story time, do you know, I had the younger kids, we don't ever just say, sit down, be quiet, I'm going to tell you a story. That's not a good way to tell a kid a story. Instead, what we say, what's in the curriculum are things like, we're going to listen to a story, and every time you hear me say a body part, I want you to point to it. So in the first story, I said something like, my feet are tired, and all the kids point to their feet, and you point to your ears, and you point to your eyes, and you try to be in the story. You act it out. You play with the story. You ask it questions. You pretend like you are the disciple. And you find that suddenly when you do all of this, you realize something you had never realized about God's word before. You know, that's why it is the living word. 
because we can approach it over and over again in different ways and hear something new even if we've heard it a million times. And so that's a a gift I get from Vacation Bible School Week, that I get to experience these stories with the children in a new way. And you know, as, as the children ask questions, they will ask things, I will be like, man, I have never thought about that. So I thought today, instead of standing here and telling you that I know exactly why the writer of John wrote exactly what the writer of John wrote, maybe we would play a little bit with the scripture and ask its questions and think about why it might be the way it is. I mean, there has to be something in this story, right? Were you listening when Jesus says, how are we going to feed all these people? I don't know why when I read this, Jesus does that. I don't But I just imagine Jesus is like, there are 5,000 plus people, and we need to feed them. What are we going to do, guys? And the disciples, you could imagine being the disciple. If someone someone turned to me and said I had to feed my kids, let alone 5,000 people, I would be like, And what did the disciples do? Oh, this is so human. They say, like, I don't have enough money to do that. A whole year's worth of my wages wouldn't even give everyone just a little bit. Right? That's what Philip says. Andrew's, Andrew says, hey, there's a kid that has some lunch. It's so he's going to go steal that kid's lunch, right? He says, hey, that kid has some lunch. And then he says, but even that's not enough. Can you picture yourself feeling that way? Man, I can. If you came to me and you said, Stacy, your job for today is to solve world hunger, I would begin to list for you a way the list of ways I cannot possibly as one person solve the problem of world hunger, though I believe it is something that needs to be solved. Right? When we see these big things in front of us that seem impossible, notice he said seem impossible, our first knee-jerk reaction is to name all the ways we can't do it. Too many people are hungry, my salary, if I gave all of it away, still wouldn't cover enough to give anyone on this earth nearly what they need to live, and then they'd just be hungry tomorrow. Sometimes we point to other people and say, you know who should do this? Bill Gates should do this, right? We look for the other obvious person to take on the challenge. But man, did you hear in this story when the disciples, who were being tested by Jesus, right? Remember that. Jesus knows that he's going to get everyone fed. They're being tested by Jesus. He's seeing what they're going to do. They go, we don't know what to do. And Jesus says, we're going to make this work. This seems impossible, but bring me the bread and the fish, and we will bless it, and there will be enough. And there was. What do we make about this detail in the story that there's a young boy that is in possession of the fish and the barley loaves? I jokingly said it sounds like Andrew's going to steal his lunch. It really does. You could read it in that way. More often, (laughs) when we read this, we picture the child's generosity, right? That the child offered, and I imagine that probably was true. Andrew may have said, may I please have some of your lunch? And the child willingly gave, right? What do we make of the fact that in the other three Gospels, it's the disciples. They have come prepared with what food they have, and they are willing to share it. But what is God trying to tell us that in John's gospel, not only does the food not come from within the inner circle, the disciples or Jesus, it comes from the crowd. Not only does it come from the crowd, it comes from what I imagine was one of the least likely sources in the crowd. If you are looking to feed 5,000 plus people, do you think you're going to scan that crowd and go, are there any kids here who can empty their pockets of lemon heads and whatever else you have? Right? It's not a likely place to look. 
So what does that tell us about who God is? Maybe it tells us God doesn't always pick the most obvious people. We've seen that in scripture, right? (laughs) King David, Jesus was born as an infant. These are themes we've seen before. Maybe it tells us that sometimes we look for solutions within and they might be outside of where we'd normally look. That again could be in there, right? But there's something in there. Again, I don't want to name it for us because I don't know exactly what it is, but something in there about why the writer of John's gospel names that the one who brings forward the loaves and the fish is a young boy. Maybe it's saying something to us about the value of having children in our midst. I could see that in there, right? That young boy wasn't there. That was all adults. Maybe there wouldn't have been any loaves or fishes. Fish, sorry. (laughs) Maybe it tells us something about having children as valuable, contributing parts of our family of faith. All these people here in pink shirts, I think you could each testify to a moment this week where there was a child who ministered you. I had one child, one day we made, uh, we gave them a pipe cleaner. That chenille stem is what they called it in the book. I had to look that one up, a pipe cleaner. (laughs) And I said to them, as we were reading the story of Elijah and the widow and the endless flour and oil, you have one pipe cleaner. You can make anything you want, but you can only have one pipe cleaner. And of course, immediately they're going, if I had two, if I could just borrow yours. No, you only have one. And we talked about how sometimes we just have a little. That's when creativity comes in. God works within us, and we can make something great. I got to tell you, they made the most amazing things. I don't think any class made the same things out of theirs. But one little girl at the end of that lesson came up to me. It was a lesson about sharing because the widow shares the last little bit she has with Elijah. And she gave me her little snail she had made. It's on my desk. And she said, I want you to have this. Wow. I wouldn't have experienced that, right? If I wasn't at Vacation Bible School, if that child wasn't in my midst, I wouldn't have felt God's love in that way. You know, there's another part of this story that occurs in all four Gospels, but I think is really important. Partially because any time in Scripture they give us a number, like a real number, It's always like a, pay attention, this means something. (laughs) Then we all have to go through trying to figure out what it means. But do you notice they have that little bit of food? They share what they have. Jesus blesses it and gives it out. Everyone, it says, takes what they need to be full. They all take enough. No one is getting an eensy-beensy bit and is going hungry. Everyone takes what they need to be full. And afterwards, Jesus says to the disciples, don't let anything go to waste. Go and bring me the leftovers. Do you remember how many baskets of leftovers came back? Twelve. Hmm, twelve. That's a number we could do something with, right? There were twelve disciples. Maybe that's it. So Jesus feeds everyone. There are twelve baskets left over. And what it doesn't say, this is where I like to have my imagination hat on, is what happens to the twelve baskets. We know Jesus doesn't want them to be wasted, so I'm imagining they get used. I don't know, there's a part of me that imagines, what if those 12 baskets, the same numbers as the disciples, are taken out to feed more people? What does that tell us about God and who we are? God feeds everyone. There is plenty and more than enough to go out and continue to feed other people. You know, this week, every day when we gathered, we had our kids memorize our uh, 
Bible verse. It's on the back of my t-shirt, but you can also see it here. Give us this day our daily bread. And then every day we added on a daily special. Again, remember food trucks, it's a food theme. So our main course was give us this day our daily bread. And all the kids memorized that. And then each day we added a special. God is great. God is good. Let us thank God for our food. By God's hands, we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. You ever heard those words put together before? That's like the earliest blessing I learned as a kid. I think it was that, now I lay me down to sleep, and occasionally, uh, that now I lay me down to sleep was for bedtime. And then occasionally at dinner, we'd sing Johnny Appleseed because my mom loved it. But most often we'd say that prayer. I've said it my whole life. And there are some days I can say it and, and just say it. You know what I mean? Like, I could say it in my sleep. But I was thinking about it this week as we were teaching it to our kids, and I was thinking about it in relationship to this scripture, because when we said, when we read together John 6, we said together, by God's hands we all are fed. And I was like, man, I thought this was just like a kid's prayer. This is a really countercultural prayer. Have you ever thought about that? This prayer is suggesting, (laughs) we are saying, we are proclaiming when we pray it, that we believe that God is the source of all that we have, that by God's hands we will be fed. Man, that means something. You know what it means for me as a control freak? I'm not in control. (laughs) I think I'm in control. I like to put my input in about what we eat on any given day. But if God is the source of all that we have, It's not for us to hoard or to hold on to or to keep or decide who gets fed and who doesn't get fed. This is God's food. And God's food is meant to be shared. As we told the kids, those Israelites that hoarded too much manna the next day woke up and found it was full of worms, right? When we say that by God's hands we are fed, it means that we trust God to give us just what we need. Because if we get just what we need, that means there will be enough for every person to be fed. You know what else it means when we pray this? And this is kind of crazy to me. If we say that we thank God for our food and that it's by God's hands that we are fed, it means that the food that nourishes our bodies and every hand that has touched it, from the person who planted the seed to the farmer who harvested it, to the driver who drove the truck of produce to our local grocery store, to the person who put it on the shelf, to the person who checked us out, to the person who prepares it, whether it's at home or a restaurant, are for us the hands of God because they are an integral part of bringing the food to our table. In Bible school, when we shared this verse, we asked the kids, what do God's hands look like? That's a fun question, right? Are they huge? Are they small? Are they glow? Are they... And we tell the kids to do this. We told the kids to do this. Can you do this? Just hold up your hands. You know, you can, however high you feel comfortable. You, you might want to hold it down here, right? And we ask them to look around. Can you look around? You see other people also have hands? And we told them that these are God's hands. These are God's hands. When these hands are at work sharing, serving, caring, these are God's hands. Because by God's hands we are fed. When God feeds us, we feed others. When we are filled up on the goodness of God, we want to share that goodness with other people. And that's the amazing thing about food, isn't it? I don't know that I've met many people who would say that food's really complicated. It can be, I'm sure. I'm looking at some people who I know can cook who can tell me about a complicated meal. (laughs) 
But food is food, right? It's simple nourishment for our bodies. But it's so much more, isn't it? Food is something we share with other people. I don't know about you, I, I hate eating alone. I really do. It's a weird thing I have. Even though I have small kids in my life and my husband is offered, like, go to a restaurant, sit by yourself, eat by yourself, I do not like it. I feel like food is something we share. We do it together. We gather around it. Food is something that builds us up. Ideally, if it's real good food, like something that someone we loved cooked for us, our favorite, whatever it is, it makes us happy. There is nothing happier than when you eat a really good piece of pound cake, at least not in my. <laughs> Becky Craven's pound cake, whoo, I could just dance around the sanctuary. It nourishes us, but it does something more, doesn't it? It's not just calories. It's a vehicle for God's love. And I love that the church, and I'm sure people do this all over the country, but again, I'm a southern girl, so southern church is what I'm used to, makes casseroles for people. I love that I can name for you the people and churches I've served and what their thing was. Like what their casserole was. Or I had one woman who, who made butter beans, the best butter beans, moved into a new parsonage, she showed up with butter beans. She was the butter bean lady. I love that you can know a person by the food they make and that they hone this craft and then they gift it to people. And I love food especially food as a symbol of God's love, because I look out into our world and I know that we are hungry and people are hurting. And it can be so complicated to think how we can fix it all. I mean, just this week I was on Facebook. My mentor, someone who brought me into ministry, was sharing that um, he serves a Methodist church in Birmingham and their Episcopal sister church had experienced a shooting. People had been killed. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to fix that. But you know, that's one of those places where we could show up with some food, with some presence, with some love. And the thing about food is you can set a meal on the table and you don't have to say anything. It's been said. I love you and I want to make sure you have what you need. This is a big problem and I don't want you to walk through it alone. The world is hungry physically hungry, spiritually hungry. And there are things ahead of us that are huge, (laughs) generational, feel impossible. And yet, I remember this story of the feeding of the 5,000. I think about how it's in all four Gospels, so it must be telling me something. I look at our hungry world and I imagine that Jesus looks out across that crowd and looks at us and says, how are we going to feed them? And I confess that in my soul, the first thing I want to say is, I don't have enough money to do that. I don't have the right food to do that. And then I remember what Scripture tells me, that if we bring to Jesus what we have, five loaves, two fish, that if we show up, We bless what we have. We offer it to God. God will make sure that no one goes hungry, that everyone is full, and that there's even more to share. And so it may sound simple, but what would it mean if we lived a life that really believed that by God's hands we all are fed? By God's hands 
We all are fed by God's hands. We all are fed. What would it mean if we lived as though we believed that by God's hands we all are fed? In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.